It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We bring you the latest updates from Ukraine, discuss developments in Chechnya, and analyse the appointment of former Prime Minister David Cameron as the UK's new Foreign Secretary. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 13th of November, one year and 262 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Politics Reporter Genevieve Hall-Allen, and Editor of the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin, James Kilner. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Let's start in the east. Russian forces continued offensive operations around Avdivka over the weekend, but did not make any confirmed gains. The Ukrainian general staff said their forces had repelled over 18 Russian assaults to the west and the southwest of Avdivka. You'll remember basically what's happening there is Russia is trying a, a double envelopment, so a, a, a prong to the south and a prong to the north. Various um, villages and other towns to the west and southwest of Avdivka is where a lot of the fighting has been taking place over the weekend. And then a Russian mill blogger said yesterday that Ukrainian forces had counterattacked and restored control over previously lost positions near Fojani which is 7 k's southwest of Avdika. That That is all on that southern arm. Regarding the northern arm, again, from Russian bloggers, so as I say, pinch of salt time, but Russian bloggers are saying their forces have continued to advance near to the centre of Avdivka, some claiming they've reached the outskirts and others claiming that that uh, Russian forces hold positions within the town. Not, I don't think that's correct. Uh, a, a Ukrainian telegram channel specifically covering the fight in Avdivka said on Saturday that Kyiv's forces had pushed Russian troops out of Stepove, which is about one or two k's north of the main town at the main road there, sort of heading north-northwest-ish, after Russian forces had temporarily established positions there. Now, a lot of this reporting is coming from the Institute for the Study of War, ISW. They say they've not observed visual evidence of Russian forces holding positions on the outskirts of Stepove or in the settlement itself. They're also reporting that Ukrainian forces conducted recent successful counterattacks near Abdivka and have made marginal gains. Geolocated footage published on Saturday indicates that uh, Kyiv's forces had pushed south of Abdivka near the E-50 highway. So that is in the centre, going from the the bit that Ukraine holds 
pushing further east into the Russian positions. So a huge amount of fighting, um, no real territorial shifting there, but a lot of effort, particularly around the to the south, along the villages and what have you, to the south and southwest of Avdivka. Next, let's dip down to uh, Zaporizhia Oblast and talk about the bridgehead or whatever we think it might be across the Dnipro River that has um, that's been there for some time now. Russia not been able to dislodge it. There's confusion this morning in Russian state media over over exactly what it is and what's happening down there. So two Russian state news agencies published alerts this morning saying that Moscow was moving for uh, moving troops to quote more favorable positions unquote east of the Dnipro River. Um, only for them to withdraw that information a few minutes later. You'll remember they use the same terminology, or they use it quite a lot, the withdrawing to or moving to more favourable positions, which is taken to be, um, yeah, I mean, withdrawing, which is a sensible, in occasionally a sensible military move. But, you know, they, they don't say withdrawing at all. They always say they're moving to more favourable positions, which they did over, over the, the move out of Hezon, you may remember, last year. So in a series of three alerts this morning, the RIA state news agency said the command of Russia's Dnieper group of forces had decided to relocate troops to more favourable positions east of the river. It said that after the regrouping, the Dnieper force would release some troops to be deployed in offensives on other fronts. RIA said the uh, Russian military command had agreed the Dnieper leadership's conclusions. Now, conclusions to what? We don't know. It's, uh, it's not like Russia to uh, allow ideas to come bubbling up from the bottom and for the bosses up top say, well, hey, fellas, you're, you're closest to the action. We'll take your, we'll take your view. So this might be, uh, it might be false. It might be blame storming, looking for, uh, looking for someone else to take the fall, which is normally out of a window. But anyway, RIA is saying Russia's military command has agreed, that, that agreed with Dnieper's leadership conclusions um, and ordered the relocation of troops to start. But then, a short time later, the RBC news outlet quoted the Defence Ministry as saying, quote, the sending of a false report about the regrouping of troops in the Dnipro region, allegedly on behalf of the press centre of the Russian Ministry of Defence, is a provocation, end of quote. So they're denying it. Quite who they think is the provocateur, agent provocateur, I do not know, paging Dr. Freud. Anyway, Russia's military last week said its forces had thwarted Ukraine's attempt to forge a bridgehead over the eastern bank of the Dnipro and the nearby islands. That is challenged by geolocated footage from the area. We've been talking about it for for a while now. Not that I'm at all saying the Russian MOD isn't a credible source of information. And now, look, it might make sense for Russia to move forces from Dnipro, particularly if, as seems likely, given the events on the ground and General Zeluzny's comments last week, it looks like Ukraine may have culminated in the offensive in the south. Culmination, remember I've said before, means that you're basically exhausted. So you're not going backwards, but you, you can no longer maintain forward offensive momentum. So it looks like the counteroffensive, if you like, that started back in June, I think, might be coming to a halt and they might be transitioning to the defensive for probably, arguably, for the winter. If that's the case, if Ukraine is transitioning onto the defensive to hold what they've gained... Russia obviously would dearly want to push them back, not only to gain the ground that Ukraine has retaken, but also as a propaganda coup. So in order to do that, they might have to take troops. They probably will have to take troops from elsewhere. So that area down by Dnipro could well be an area where they decide to sort of move back onto their onto the lines that already exist. So you know, fall, falling back onto your own lines, onto your own supply lines and your own area you hold 
it's a lot easier to I mean the, the actual movement itself can be chaotic and you need to needs to be done very very carefully that rear what's called rearward passage of lines because it can quickly turn into a rout if the if the enemy have enough forces to uh, to, to really unsettle you unlikely in this situation because they've got to get over the river first but going backwards is very dangerous but you, it could and it should lead to a a better defended position because you're falling back into your own troops if you know what I mean so you should it should be this could be a sensible tactical move by Russia which might not see a huge amount of ground but could free up troops to go and potentially push back against the gains that Ukraine have made further in um, Zaporizhia Oblast anyway that that's a bit of speculation and analysis as to what we think is happening geolocated footage published yesterday shows Ukrainian forces have made marginal advances further into the town of Krynki. So to put you on, we're about 30 k's northeast of Hezon City, across the Dnipro River now. And despite what the Russian MOD is saying, I'll refer you to my earlier comments about them not always telling the truth, Russian mill bloggers have been saying that Russian forces tried and failed to push Ukrainian forces from Krynki and that those Ukrainian forces are conducting offensive operations further down to the west, so closer to Hezon City, still across the river, but describing a larger footprint than, um, well, certainly than Russian MOD would, would have you believe. Now, these mill bloggers claimed Ukrainian forces have transferred additional personnel to the area, uh, and they are intending to cut Russian logistic lines to strike infrastructure connecting the Russian front line to rear areas across from Crimea, Hezon and Zaporizhia Oblasts. There's obviously no way they would be able to know that. It is a reasonable assumption about why Ukraine might be trying to push through there, but the Russian mill block community simply won't know. So that that is as far as we're going to take that. There's lots of comment, lots of comment on particularly Russian Telegram channels comprising apparent news and analysis, but it's all it's all very speculative. And there's no need for us to report any of that further to add to the confusion. So I think we'll just sum that up by saying that there is still there still seems to be a, a reasonably a reasonable sized force across the river by Ukraine. Quite what it's doing and what its intentions are, we don't know. And it may have led to Russia possibly ceding some ground, taking troops out, which might then be used to push back against the gains that have been made further around in Zaporizhia. Staying in the south. Three Russian officers were killed by an explosion carried out by pro-Kiev partisans in occupied Ukraine, Kiev has said. Uh, the blast, this was during a meeting of the FSB and Rosgvardia National Guard officers in Melitopol, occurred over the weekend. This is according to Ukraine's military intelligence agency. They said, this act of revenge carried out by representatives of the local resistance movement took place on the premises of the new post office seized by the Russians. Russian authorities were reportedly spotted dragging a burnt car through the streets of the city after the attack. And Ukraine's intelligence agency said the officers were killed, or the officers killed belonged to Russia's National Guard. Now, Ivan Fedorov, the exiled Ukrainian mayor of Mertopol, said, near the military bases of the occupiers, military guards are armed to the teeth all around. An hour before the meeting, traffic was blocked, and suddenly for the enemy, bang, minus three punishments. I think that might be a misquote there. The Melitopol underground is working, he said. Now, we've not been able to independently verify those claims. A couple more. President Zelensky, in his address last night, he's saying Ukraine must be prepared for waves of Russian attacks on uh, critical energy infrastructure and across the eastern front line through the winter. 
He said, got to be prepared for the possibility they will increase the number of drone or missile strikes on our infrastructure, as widely expected. Oh, sorry, the last bit was me, as widely expected. President Zelensky went on, Russia is preparing for Ukraine, and here in Ukraine, all attention should be focused on defence, on responding to terrorists, on everything that Ukraine can do to get through the winter and improve our soldiers' capabilities. He hailed the uh, what he called heroic efforts of troops defending Avdivka, and uh, he was speaking, so speaking last night, a day after the first time in, I think, 52 days, that Kiev was hit by... Uh, by drone strikes and missile strikes. And then just finally, the training centre for Ukrainian pilots to learn how to fly F-16s, F-16 fighter jets, has officially opened in Romania. The Romanian Defence Minister Angel Tilvar, he said that he said that this morning. So that is moving on a bit. And I'll take a pause there, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Let's go to Genevieve Hall-Allen, our politics reporter. A big story from the UK today is a dramatic reshuffle in the British government. The important takeaway for this podcast is, of course, the UK has a new foreign secretary. Genevieve Hall-Allen, who is it and how did the day unfold for you? Yes, so there have been... Hi, David. There have been mumblings that there was perhaps to be a, a reshuffle this week. But there has been some news this morning that has set Westminster reeling namely that there has been a a reappearance of uh, a familiar face from some time ago, and that is that former Prime Minister David Cameron has been appointed Foreign Secretary um, in the new reshuffle um, by Rishi Sunak today. As part of this wider reshuffle, we've seen Suella Bravman sacked as Home Secretary, and she has been replaced by James Cleverley, who was Foreign Secretary from September 2022 until this morning. He in the biggest shock of all so far in this reshuffle has been replaced by David Cameron, of course, the Prime Minister from 2010 to 2016, uh, first leading a coalition government and then leading the Conservative government from 2015 before resigning following the Brexit referendum result. He was not an MP or even sitting in the House of Lords before today, but he has been awarded a life peerage in connection with his new appointment. So he is now to us Lord Cameron. Announcing his new role, he issued a rather lengthy statement on, on X, formerly Twitter, saying... We are facing a daunting set of international challenges, including the war in Ukraine and the crisis in the Middle East. At this time of profound global change, it has rarely been more important for this country to stand by our allies, strengthen our partnerships and make sure our voice is heard. While I have been out of frontline politics for the last seven years, I hope that my experience as Conservative leader for 11 years and Prime Minister for six will assist me in helping the Prime Minister to meet these vital challenges. Now, in this statement, which is is quite long, so I won't read the whole thing, but he admitted that he may have disagreed with some individual decisions made by government figures since he left office. But he added, it is clear to me that Rishi Sunak is a strong and capable prime minister who is showing exemplary leadership at a difficult time. And uh, the news, uh, to say the least, has been pretty divisive, some heralding it as, as good news for Britain and others questioning why a sitting MP hasn't been handed the role. And also looking back at some of Lord Cameron's controversies, not only when he was uh, in politics, but since leaving. Thank you very much, Genevieve, for talking us through all of that. Just quickly, because I know you have to head off back to the desk. Do we have any sense about what this means for the UK's positions on, on Ukraine and the Ukrainian war? Do, what, what do you make of this so far? 
well, it's going to be an interesting one. I think one thing that we one thing that will immediately raise questions is, of course, uh, Lord Cameron's standing within the European Union. Something that will be hugely important, as it has been since the beginning of the Ukraine war and going forward. What the relationship will be like between the UK and the EU? I mean, will he be a galvanising influence for the bloc or, or not? Given the circumstances in which he left his position as Prime Minister, of course, resigning after Britain voted for Brexit. Another point is that he he was Prime Minister in March 2014 when Russia first invaded Crimea. At the time he came out, as a lot of Western powers did, to criticise the move and did say, he said recently that at that time Ukraine was leading Western sanction efforts, though critics have said since then and at the time that the West, including Britain, didn't go far enough in March 2014. So that will be an interesting thread as well. And something which is slightly apart, but still something that could have some bearing, but mainly just another facet of of foreign policy that will be an interesting strain to look at as we go forward is uh, Lord Cameron's position on China. Now, he was very pro-China during his time in office when his coalition government heralded a golden era of UK-Beijing relations. And he previously served as a vice chair for a £1 billion investment fund for UK and China. And concerns have also been raised by Westminster's China Hawks about his promotion of a Chinese-funded port city in Sri Lanka, which is called the Colombo Port City Project, which is a major part of President Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. So there are a few interesting threads there, although I have to say Britain's policy towards Ukraine uh, and Russia since the war uh, started has been pretty stable, despite the recent change um, in Defence Secretary when we saw Grant Shapps appointed to that role um, a few months ago. Um, so I imagine that it won't have a, a, major, di- a major change um, in policy in that respect. But nonetheless, um, particularly David Cameron's standing within the EU will be something to keep an eye out, I think. Well, thank you very much, Genevieve. Thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with the rest of the day. I know it's been a, 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 a tricky one and a fairly surprising one for all the news, news reporters here. Thank you so much, Genevieve. James Kilner, can I come to you? Thank you so much for your time today. You were on the Moscow desk over the weekend looking at stories inside Russia. Where would you like to start? Hi, David. So I think our two top stories over the weekend was a train sabotage uh, about 150 miles southeast of Moscow on Saturday morning, uh, it was a it was a it was a large one. They're talking about 19 wagons being derailed, and looking at the photos, it looked pretty serious. The Russian Investigative Committee has launched a terrorist incident, and some details are leaked onto the Telegram social media social messaging sites, which which really highlight the sophistication of the of the alleged sabotage. They're talking about two ID, IEDs being planted at sort of 10, 10 metres uh, gap and the uh, the saboteurs using some sort of video equipment link attached to trees to monitor the train. So so quite a sophisticated attack. Uh, the Russian media is also saying this is the closest train sabotage that we've had in Russia since the war started, closest train sabotage to Moscow. And they're highlighting that as a sort of shows the sort of security issues which, which Russian railways is now facing. As our listeners will know, we've touched on the issue of sabotage in Russia fairly frequently on, on this programme. And, and the rail network is absolutely critical to the Russian war effort. Um, I can't stress that enough. This is how uh, the Russian military shifts men and equipment and weapons around the story that we followed last month was that North Korea has sent roughly one million 
shells to Russia since, since they signed a deal earlier early in the year. All those shells have now moved to the front line in, in, uh, in Ukraine through train. So any, sab- any sabotage on the Russian railway networks uh, is really important. It will slow down the Russian war effort. And it really it's, it's really important for Ukrainians to see, see this sort of thing in action. No responsibility has been claimed by any group, which just suggests it may have been an internal operation. So it also is a sign of, of more resistance to Russian uh, domestic resistance to the war in Ukraine. There are numerous accounts of arson on, on Russian military recruitment centres regularly. We, we saw another incident in a regional town, a Molotov cocktail train at a Russian recruitment centre over the weekend. But these train uh, attacks and the size of this one are actually really important, David. Thank you so much, James. Could you take us down to Chechnya, where you write that Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen warlord, uh, is looking at the issue of succession? Yeah, so this is important... Um, this story's been going on for a couple of months, and we get the opportunity to write about it every every now and again. And this is really the succession issue in Chechnya is really important for Russian stability, uh, which also means uh, the Russian war effort in Ukraine. Now, what has happened is two, two things have been going on. As podcast regular podcast listeners will know, Ramzan Kadyrov has been or is suspected of being ill. He, he's, he's become very bloated in the last few months. His speech is slurred. He moves incredibly slowly and he does make these trips fairly regularly to Moscow and has to explain the way the, the, the working theory is that they're to a hospital and to see various consultants. There might be something wrong with his liver or some other blood disorder. Um, but but we, we don't have that information. That is, that is um, conjecture uh, and speculation. But nonetheless, conjecture and speculation which is growing in, um, in strength and, and, and sort of perceived wisdom. Now, at the same time this has been happening, since September, Kadyrov has been very overtly promoting his three teenage sons and daughters within the Chechnya system. Um, now, analysts that I've been speaking to say that this is all about a succession issue and may well be linked to his health. Most prominent among these uh, teenage sons, which has been which he's been promoting, is his 15-year-old boy called Adam Kadyrov, who is just as thuggish and brutish as his dad. He was videoed in August beating up an unarmed and apparently defenseless and restrained man in a Chechen prison. Man, I mean, brought in for trying to set fire to Quran. The video is Adam punching and, and swinging kicks at this guy. It horrified people in Moscow, some people in Moscow anyway. But Ramzan Kadyrov came out and said, you know, he's very proud of his son. He was trying to defend the, the values of Chechnya and, and Islam, et cetera, et cetera. And since then, he's, he's really propelled this guy, Adam Kadyrov, who struts around with a gold-plated pistol strapped to his side in, in Chechnya and whose Instagram feed is, is filled with him and firing machine guns and practicing boxing, that sort of character. He's been promoting him. Uh, I think he's given him six medals now, uh, including the Hero of Chechnya medal, which is the highest that he can hand out, and promoting him up to be his in his bodyguard. His other two teenage sons 
Akhmat and Ali uh, have also received various awards and been promoted up through the system, but but not to the same level as as, as Adam. Again, people who follow this podcast and, and, and the war very closely will remember that all three boys were sent to battlefields in Ukraine last year to pose with rifles, wearing round sunglasses, uh, black clothing, that sort of thing. Uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, as we know, loves his his men, his battalions, his TikTok battalions, as 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 they're tongue and cheekly called, to pose in uh, uh, in in the war in Ukraine rather than any fighting, and he wanted his sons to do the same sort of thing. Now, stability in Chechnya is really critical to the Kremlin because of the memories of two wars that they fought against Chechen rebels in the late 90s and early 2000s, which were horrific. Wars flattened Grozny, thousands of people killed, allegations of torture, etc., etc. There was uh, bombing uh, campaigns in central Moscow. It really scored the Russian memory, conscious, conscience. And uh, any hint that stability is going to be rocked again in Chechnya will make people very edgy, very nervous, and will distract the Kremlin from their operations in Ukraine. Uh, Not only will they have to strategize about Chechnya, but they may have to divert a lot of military resources, men and equipment. And as we know, they're already massively overstretched in in this incredibly attritional war in Ukraine. And Kadyrov is fully backed by the Kremlin on the condition and bankrolled, etc., and, and his corruption and what he does with the cash is all blind eyes turned to any misdemeanors, that sort of thing, because he is seen as the hard man. He's prepared to use torture and bullying and consider Chechen his personal fiefdom in return for uh, this sort of stability. Uh, and so any instability is, is a major, major problem. There is one other element to this story which, which listeners need to understand. Uh, according to the current law, the Chechen president has been minimum age of 30 to take over power. Kadyrov himself had to wait three years or, or nearly three years to become president. He was too young when his dad was blown up in uh, 2004, a bomb in, in the football stadium as he was watching the uh, May night military parade. So the eldest son is still only 18. So you've got potentially 12 years. Of course, laws can be change, but 12 years potentially of um, jockeying for position within the Chechen system, maybe some infighting, all these sort of things. Like Kadyrov is desperately trying to get a handle by promoting his, his, his family at the moment and align his various senior officials too. So a really, really interesting, really important story for uh, people interested in the war in Ukraine to monitor. That is a major Kremlin Achilles heel as is Dagestan, neighbouring Dagestan, where the pogrom was a couple of weeks ago. But Chechnya is the, the sort of one of the biggest Achilles hills that Kremlin has. If that, if there's a sort of major instability there, then it's a major headache for the problem and a major boost for Kiev. Thank you so much, James. We'll come back to you soon, I think. Uh, but Dom Nichols, I know you wanted to jump in and just talk about this, this attack on, on a train in Russia as well. Dom Nichols. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about these sorts of attacks more broadly and whether or not they actually have any effect whatsoever and it, it um we've spoken about this before i've done a defense in depth film i think maybe a couple of them actually about the special operations executive the soe in, in the second world war an organization that was basically it, well it was set up by 
Churchill and just given the orders set Europe ablaze, which is a brilliant mission statement for anybody who doesn't really like like being told what to do. And the question then was whether the SOE actually had any effect, any mili- hard military effect. Did it tie down troops? Did it knock out uh, radar stations and, and rail yards and all the rest of it? Or was it was it just a good propaganda coup? These news such as we've received today about the railway line, I mean, that, that will be replaced, that will be fixed. It'll take some time, maybe not a huge amount of time, but it will be fixed. But it's a, it's a, it's a good propaganda victory, as in, well, yeah, it's, a, it's literally a victory, and it's good for, the, good for morale on the home front. And there was a question as to whether or not that was all, or primarily what the SOE were able to offer. And that, by, that might be enough. That might be absolutely fine, set it up to do that. You have to shore up the um, domestic and international morale. So that might be all that they can be achieved. But... You know, there's always a tension between these types of outfits and and intelligence agencies. It was said during the Second World War that the tension between the SOE and and MI6 was huge. So MI6, like a nice quiet area where they could creep about and talk to people and just establish networks and have nice little chats in coffee shops. It was unhelpful that SOE would then come in and blow up the arms depot down the road, which would flood the place with German troops. And then MI6 couldn't do their stuff for a few more months. Now, it might not be the same here. I don't know. I don't have a real feel for the, the kind of the espionage world in the Russian areas bordering Ukraine, whether or not Ukraine will have tried to be, will be trying to set up these networks and therefore these sorts of attacks might be unhelpful. But we just need to bear in mind how much use they have. I mean, the, the, in the Second World War, probably the Telemark raid on the, um, in Norway, which was kind of SOE... Um, inspired and assisted and supported, but was basically an, an operation by Norwegian partisans, although they wore British uniforms underneath their civilian clothes. So if they were captured, it was going to be less likely that the that local Norwegian towns would be would have reprisals taken against them if the Germans thought it was a British uh, commando uh, operation. But that one, that to, to uh, knock out the um, the electric, hydroelectric plants making heavy water for the German atomic bomb program that was successful but arguably that was struggled to think of many more on that scale but as i say even these small small attacks they are they are all um, good for shoring up the, uh, the the domestic front so just need to get these things in perspective and think about all the wider context and actually how in, in some areas they might not be deemed that that helpful but just a thought no thank you very much Tom. that added a lot of um, interesting context i think um James Kilner, six days ago, Reuters published their piece, which we talked about on the podcast, saying that Russia's, I'm just reading the headline now, Russia's Putin to stay in power past 2024, sources say, about the Russian president's uh, re-election hopes for next year. What more can you tell us about the upcoming Russian elections? So it looks like the Kremlin has pretty much confirmed that. they. Uh, it is now saying that it's putting together a list of official supporters for Putin to uh, to stand, I think it's in March next year. And then the camera, which sort of go, goes a long way to, to confirming the Reuters report, uh, which in any case is, is no surprise at all. The, the important story today is actually from Commerçant newspaper, which is a, a Russian newspaper, sort of business orientated, quite a sober newspaper, but like the rest of the media, obviously, um, is pro Kremlin, etc., and it is it has been reporting today that Putin will probably stand as an independent candidate 
which is a departure. He has been um, he he has been the official candidate of United Russia, which has been coined his his political party. So uh, th- this th- this is a departure. This is actually a surprise as well. Uh, and the feeling is that he he wants to be seen as a unifying war candidate who is above the uh, the domestic political agenda in Russia, although the domestic political agenda in Russia is in reality all geared towards supporting whatever Kremlin does. There is a communist party and there are some other national parties and even a, a sort of a relatively sort of uh, uh, pastiche liberal party. But so, so, Putin, so the news is that Putin wants to stand as an independent and it, it looks like he wants to make the war the main focus of, of, of his agenda, of course. Now, this is also important because um, in September's regional elections, the United Russia Party had been told to campaign very hard on on the war in Ukraine as its as its main sort of stick, and when it did, it found out that it was basically a, a, a voter turn off and a vote loser, and they eventually dropped the uh, war campaign rhetoric a couple of weeks before the actual election. So uh, again, this is the Kremlin. And, and they're very adept at doing this, testing out public opinion, and in, in this case, in, in the Russian regional elections in September, and then tweaking their own policy to to shift Putin away from that. That would seem to be a bit of a a bit of a false policy. So that, so they've moved moved the dial again. It looks like there is one other issue to to t- take into account with the Russian regional elections, and that was the relative success of the electronic voting system, which the, the Kremlin was pushing. If, if, if you remember, Peter himself did a sort of little advert for, for the electronic voting. He, you know, where he used the internet. You never see him use the internet ever. He famously doesn't use the internet or, or have a smartphone. He used the internet apparently to vote. So the, the Kremlin is pushing this. And the idea is that they say they get bigger uh, turnout, which is a number to watch. And, and that was proved to some extent in the regional elections. I think turnout was about 10% higher than previous regional elections. But Western observers, Western analysts say actually the real reason is that electronic voting or, uh, is, is far easier to manipulate and to inflate the numbers for Putin in this case. So lots going on the political agenda. Again, this all links back to the war in Ukraine and, and for how long it's persecuted. Well, thank you so much, Dom, James, and earlier Genevieve. Let's move to our final thoughts then. Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Yeah, thanks, David. So I just wanted to mark a, a date in history. It's a bit clunky because it was actually yesterday, but November the, November the 12th. Let's go back to 1940. Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov, Vishlev Molotov, rocks up in Berlin, gets a guard of honour, met, met Ribbentrop and then met, met Hitler. The result from that, that little jaunt was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which governed Soviet-German relations till 1941, when Hitler obviously invaded. But I thought it was just interesting, and particularly for Russian or listeners to this pod and contributors to the chat space who are Uncle Joe fanboys and uh, seem to have a a big old hankering for the good old days of the Soviet Union. Let's not hear any more blather about you not liking Nazis. Stand fast for a moment the contemporary environment but history shows us where your where your sympathies really lie so let's look at what happened in 1940 yesterday if you if, if you will and i think that will show where old soviet union and many in the current uh regime in, in the kremlin and the fanboys around the world where where their sympathies actually lie regarding nazis and the t-shirts and what have you thank you thank you dom and james Kilner. 
So if, if, if you don't mind, David, I want to bring him back to David Cameron, who is, is the new foreign minister here. And one of his first meetings, according to the Armenian media anyway, is with their foreign minister, Ararat um, Mizoyan, who is here for or, or in London for the um, for for what the, the Armenian media are sort of uh, very excited about the first strategic dialogue between the UK and Armenia, which sounds like it's going to be a two day event. And Mr. Mizoyan is meant to be meeting the uh, British Foreign Minister, which which is now David Cameron. Now this is they're incredibly excited about this because. This is continuing the realignment of Armenia's foreign policy away from Russia and away from the Kremlin around this sort of the Azerbaijani attack on ethnic Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh in September and the lack of Kremlin support for um, Armenian ethnic Armenians there and, and general support for Armenia on the whole. As we know, we've seen um, Armenia gravitate heavily towards the West. It's now buying weapons from France. Canada's opened up a, an embassy in Yerevan, its first embassy in Yerevan, this sort of thing. And this is all to do with the war in Ukraine and all to do with the realignment of uh, Russian, well, previous, previously Kremlin satellite states away from the Kremlin orbit. It also comes, this trip by uh, the Russian, uh, the Armenian foreign minister, it also comes two months after Armenia upgraded their embassy in London from what had been a two-room operation in, in something called Armenia House in Kensington, just an office block, which they've been operating from since 1992, just after independence from the Soviet Union. They've now bought a £17 million townhouse in St. James's Square uh, for a brand new embassy. So they are really gearing up their uh, relations with the UK, which they, I think they see because of the UK's staunch support for Ukraine, that I think they see as a really important potential ally and a potential important stepping stone for uh, Yadavan to step away properly from the Kremlin's orbit. So a really interesting first test for David Cameron. Let's hope he's uh, up to the challenge. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.com co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.